Well, those of you who have been with us over the last few months know that we began working our way through this letter right after Thanksgiving, going into Advent, and we we went through chapter 1. Chapter 1 was really helpful for Advent season because it it states that Jesus is coming. He's coming again. Chapter 1, really, primarily, the focus is upon the second Advent of Jesus. And so Paul is saying to the believers at Thessalonica in the first century, Jesus is coming. I thought about that this week and reminded me of a, a preacher who was invited to fly overseas to, uh, to be part of a speaking engagement. And uh, he didn't fly very much, and uh, so pr- pretty much the trip wore him out. He was fatigued and rather strung out when he got there, and they had to rush him straight from his hotel over to the church. And he got there, and uh, he was you know, pretty flustered. He hadn't really had a chance to go over his notes and everything, and uh, he got in the pulpit, and his text was from Revelation where Jesus says, Behold, I'm coming. And so he got up, and he said, Behold, I'm coming. He used his best preacher voice. But right after he said that, his mind went blank. Couldn't remember a thing. He thought to himself, hmm, maybe if I say it a little bit more emphatic, maybe that'll jar something. So he said, behold, I'm coming. Fell flat, nothing. He couldn't remember his notes from there on. So he's panicked. He thought, well, you know, maybe if I really thunder it, you know, maybe if I really thunder it, you know, it'll jog something and I'll remember. So he said, behold, I am coming. And he got so into it. He got so into it, he lost his balance. He tripped over the monitor, something like I've got right here. He tripped over the monitor, fell right off the platform into the front row, right into the lap of a lady who's sitting there. He jumped up and apologized all over himself. Ma'am, I'm so sorry. And she said, honey, it's not your fault. You warned me three times you were coming. <laughs> so, yes, Jesus is coming. And, 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 According to the Bible, he's going to do so literally. He's, he's going to literally come back. He's going to bodily return. Now, I, I have to say that. See, most of, you, most of you know that. Most of you have been in church for a while. You know that the Bible teaches that Jesus is coming back in, in a bodily form, literally coming back. And I have to say that because we're not among those who believe and teach that the second coming uh, just means that Jesus lives on in his teaching. Did you know that, that 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 kind of teaching finds its root out there in some of the progressive liberal churches? That Oh, good grief, you all don't believe that Jesus is literally coming back. Uh, second coming just means that he lives on in his teaching. Don't be misled by that. That's not at all what the Bible teaches. He's coming back literally in bodily form. Or don't be misled by people like Deepak Chopra. Uh, he shows up on Oprah every once in a while. He's one of the gurus that flies around. He said, he said that the second coming is a transformation of consciousness where humanity will finally be awakened and have consciousness like that of Jesus. It's called Christ consciousness. If you hear that word, <laughs> beware. Because what it means is, is that there's those who teach and believe that Jesus is not really coming back, not literally, but there's going to be a, a, a Christ consciousness that's going to fall upon all of us. We're all going to just wake up one of these days, and we're going to be able to have a, a consciousness like Christ did. And uh, that's what they teach that the second coming is. And don't be misled by that, because the Bible teaches that Jesus will come back literally. 
He'll have a bodily return. Now, we looked at that in chapter 1, and I have to go over that a little bit because we're in chapter 2 now. And chapter 2 is this, not yet. Chapter 1 is Jesus is coming. Chapter 2 is, but not yet. And, And the reason for that is a false teaching was spreading its way through the church at Thessalonica that the day of the Lord had come. You'll notice there in verse 2, we didn't read verse 2, but what, what, what was happening was there was a false teaching that was kind of spreading or blowing through the church, like stuff does today, that the day of the Lord had come. And Paul was writing to say, you know, that's not so. They, they were teaching that the day of the Lord was already completed and that, 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 that they, were, they, were, they were living in, in the dawning age of the day of the Lord. And and Paul was saying, no, that's not so. And that's really what's going on in chapter 2. And you'll notice he begins to give reasons in verse 3. So look at verse 3 with me. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now, let me stop here for just a moment, and I want you to pay very close attention. We are facing some interpretive challenges here. These are some of the most debated, hotly contested verses in all of the Bible. Um, If you've been in church very long and you're familiar with these verses, you, you ought to know that these verses are, again, present an incredible interpretive challenge. Uh, some say, well, no, this means this and this means this. Others come along and say, no, it doesn't mean that, it means this. And so I thought about this this week, and I thought, you know, that's one of the problems for people. They'll say this. They'll say, you know, that's the trouble I have with the Bible. It's not clear. It can be translated in so many different ways. So how can I really know? I've heard people talk like that. Well, you know, it's, it's just not, the Bible's so unclear. And you know, you can really make your own meaning out of it. You can, you can interpret whatever way you want to. And so how can we really know? I mean, why, why put confidence in the Bible when we, when we really, really can't know? So I thought, you know, maybe, maybe we could go over something, kind of a, just a simple little thing here to, to clear something up. To say that there's nothing clear in the Bible is just flat out wrong. It's just not true. So let me give you a couple examples. I could give you many, but here's a couple. In Hebrews chapter 12, I just want to read this verse and just ask you a couple of questions about it. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. So we're told, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, simple question. What if you say, I'm not going to do that. I don't care anything about that. I'm not going to strive for peace. I'm not going to strive for holiness. I could care less about those things. What does that mean? I think it means you won't see the Lord, right? (laughs) I mean, is is that clear enough? I mean, in other words, if you do it, you will see the Lord. But if you don't, you won't. That's not difficult, is it? See, that's pretty clear, right? I mean, you don't have to walk through a bunch. Of, there's, there's not four or five different ways to interpret that, is there? You, you, either, you either do these things and the result will be you will see the Lord. <laughs> or you don't do them and you won't. That's pretty clear, right? You should be nodding your head up and down. Okay, it's not a trick question. <laughs> well, here's the second one. Okay, maybe this one will help. Maybe better. In 1 John, we read, 
he, that was, that's Jesus, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, quick, quick survey. I think this verse is pretty clear. If you receive Christ and believe in him, if you welcome him, what happens? He gives you the right to become a child of God. But what if you don't? What if you don't? What does that mean? If you don't receive him, don't believe in him, what, what, what's the alternative? You're not a child of God. Friends, there's not four or five different ways to interpret that. that that's clear, right? So my point is this. There are, there are many, many statements in the Bible that are clear. You, you don't have to struggle with four or five different interpretations and interpretive challenges. They're very clear. Okay, so you, you understand. There, there's many of them. However, the passages that we have here in front of us today are not that clear. Let me explain why. Look at verse 6. And you know what is restraining him so that he may re be revealed in his time. Notice the phrase, in his time. What you find here is... There is not a specific time given. In other words, we, we do not know the specific time that Paul is speaking of. We don't know. Secondly, we do not have a specific identity of the man of lawlessness. I say that because throughout church history, there's been many, many things written about these verses. That the man of lawlessness is this person, or this person, or this person, or this person. And I just want to say very clearly, we don't have an identity. Paul doesn't give us one, okay? Another thing that we don't know, uh, Paul and the Thessalonians do know, But because look at verse 5. Do, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time? In other words, Paul knew... The Thessalonians knew, but we don't know. We, we don't know what is specifically restraining this man of lawlessness. So you say, well, then what, what's the use of reading this then? What's the use of even studying this if we don't know these things? Well, we can deal with what we do know. And what we do know is enough. Notice with me one thing that we know. It says in verse 3 that... For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first. Now, what does that mean? What is Paul referring to when he says the rebellion's got to come first? Before the day of the Lord dawns, the rebellion has to come first. Well, if you're, if you're reading an English Standard Version Bible, it's translated. The word tra translated there is rebellion. If you have the King James Version, it is translated falling away. And both of those are extremely accurate because they are translating a Greek word, apostasia, which we get our English word, apostasy. And what is apostasy? Well, apostasy describes a person who was once a participant in something and then fell away. That They were once part of something, but they fell away. They were once part of something, but they separated themselves from it. You understand? Uh, it's also a word used in the Old Testament to describe Israel's rebellion against God. Pa apostasy is, is, is a way of describing, again, rebellion, rebelling against God, rebelling against the faith, or another way of saying it is deserting the faith. 
leaving the faith. And so Paul is saying here that the apostasy, the falling away, the rebellion has to take place first. I I listen to uh, a variety of podcasts through the week, and a couple of them are, are, are these. And you know, I'm just going to tell you that you can look them up if you want to. Fairly interesting. One of them is called Everyone's an Agnostic. And it, it's a podcast about primarily about Christian deconversion stories. It's, it's, it's dozens upon dozens upon dozens of men and women who were once a participant. They, they were once in. And now they are describing how they left, how they apostatized, how they fell away. It's quite illuminating when you listen to these stories. And, and, it's, and, and all of the ones I've listened to so far, it's never been primarily an intellectual issue. It's not like they've, they've had this gotcha moment where they're like, I got out of Christianity because I found out that for sure that Jesus didn't rise from the dead. It wasn't anything like that. It was just over minor, minor issues. Somebody upset them at church. Something didn't go their way or their prayer wasn't answered in the way they thought it ought to be. And so they fell away. I listened to another one called Holy Heretics. And it's a, it's a couple of guys who, who uh, again, used to be, they say they used to be part of the church, but now they've been enlightened, and now they no longer are part of the church. They're, they're part of the progressive church, the more liberal church, you see, falling away, falling away. Now, you might say, well, look, good grief, people have fell away from Christianity all over time. That's true. But do you notice what Paul says here? He said, the rebellion, the apostasy. Notice, he's not talking about just in general. He's talking about rebellion larger than normal. And I just want to ask you something. As I listen to these podcasts, I kind of keep my ear to the ground on this thing. Friend, there is no shortage of people apostatizing, falling away from what they once were part of. And it makes me wonder, it makes me wonder, you know, are we, are we, are we right on? Or are we? I don't know. I don't know. But Paul is talking about the rebellion, larger than normal. These are not only, the refer- not only references to the apostasy. I want you to see a couple. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul wrote to the same group of people. He said, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith. For fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. In other words, he's saying, I was, I was afraid. I was afraid that the enemy attempted you to the point that you had apostatized, that you had fell away. Then in 1 Timothy, notice this dire warning. Listen, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith. Notice, by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Notice Let me ask you a question, just looking at that verse. What safeguards are you taking to guard yourself from apostasy? Just just ask yourself, what what safeguards are you taking to guard yourself from falling away? And, and, And I think this has to be the primary safeguard. What or who are you devoting yourself to? What are you devoting yourself to? Who are you devoting yourself to? Because I, I was looking at this week, and I thought, this is interesting to me. In 2 Corinthians, here's what Paul said. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. It doesn't say that the devil is going to uh, lead you uh, 
Paul doesn't say, I'm really worried. I'm really worried the devil's going to lead you into pornography. I'm really worried the devil's going to lead you into adultery. I'm really worried. Not, not, no. I'm really worried that he's going to lead you astray from what? From pure devotion to Christ. The most basic, at the most basic level, the most basic level, that is what it means to be a Christian. Devoted to Christ. So I ask you, what are you devoting yourself to? What safeguards are you taking to keep from falling away, from apostatizing? I believe the greatest safeguard will be what or who you are devoted to. So first, Paul says, before the day of the Lord comes, rebellion first. But then notice next, the man of lawlessness is revealed. Before, before this day of the Lord, he said, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is, is revealed. Now, notice here, Paul doesn't identify who this is. He doesn't say, well, now, you know, 100 years from now, this is going to be so-and-so. And 500 years from now, it's going to be so-and-so. Let's just face it, we do not know. But we are told here what he will do. Look at verse 4. Who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now, these verses have led to a wide range of speculation. For example, is Paul referring to the temple of God in Jerusalem? Some say yes. Some say no. Now, now you may say, well, it says the temple of God. Wouldn't that be it? Well, here's the question you have to ask. Would the Thessalonians in the first century have understood this to be the actual temple in Jerusalem? Because at that time it was still standing. But then in 70 AD, it was destroyed. And so if this is, if, if this is, to be the real temple, it would have to be rebuilt. Now, now again, some say it's got to be that, brother. That's got to be it. And, and, and here's, here, listen, here's what I want to say about that. These are interesting, non-essential matters that we can discuss. <laughs> but they're non-essential matters. And, you know what I mean by that? In other words, we have a, we have a statement of faith here at church. Here, here's the things. When we go through our new membership class today, we'll, we'll go through our statement of faith. And there's certain essentials that we believe together. But you won't find on that statement of faith that, hey, yes, this is the literal temple of God in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4. It's got to be a little, or you can't be part of this church. <laughs> See? It's a non-essential matter. It's very interesting stuff to talk about, but we can't take our eye off the ball. See, if you start, and this is what happens so often, we start, well, I wonder who this is. And we speculate, we speculate about this, speculate about this. And some, some movements and some you know, churches get started on these things, and then people argue about them, they fuss and they fight. And you take your eye off the ball. Don't take your eye off the ball. And the ball is in verse 7, okay? Look at verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. In other words, while, while people sit around, while people in the church sit around trying to speculate about who's this and what's this, does this have to be rebuilt, does this not have to be rebuilt, let's just know this. The mystery of lawlessness, Paul said in the first century, is already at work. What does that mean? And if you understand what it means, you'll understand a little bit better about the times that you're living in. What does it mean? Well, when it says the mystery of lawlessness, the man of lawlessness, take the word lawlessness, and it means this. Without law or anti-law. Now, you might think, well, that sounds like disobedience. And, and it, it certainly means that. But that, that's not all it means. I think this is interesting. Lawlessness conveys this thought. It's the person who says, 
Who's to say what right and wrong is? Who's to say? Who's, to, who's, who's the ultimate authority? Who, who says what's right and wrong? I'll decide what's right for me. I'll decide what's wrong for me. My feelings will determine what is right for me. After all, is, is there anything more important than my feelings? Now, let me give you an example of this, okay? And I think when I give you an example, you'll be able to see a little bit better. Take the issue of gender dysphoria. Take, take the... Take the 14-year-old who, who was born biologically a male, but now they begin to feel that they are female. And they will say something like, look, it, you, know, you might say, look, you were biologically born. It's on your birth certificate. You were born a male. And, and, and they will say, look, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because I feel that I'm a female and my feelings are what is important. Friends, that is the... That is the environment that we are living in now, okay? This, this environment of lawlessness where a person can say, look, I'll decide what's right for me. Who's, who's, who's ultimately going to say? You look at the Bible and say, well, the Bible says that, but that, that has no authority over me. See, that's what, at the heart of what Paul is talking about. This is just one example of what we're seeing in our culture in an ever-increasing scale. What Paul is saying, the mystery of lawlessness. And friend, if you don't see that, if you're not acquainted with that in our culture right now, you need to wake up. The mystery of lawlessness in the first century was already at work, and it is powerfully at work in our time. Yet, we're told in verse 7, that the full impact of the power of lawlessness and the man of lawlessness will not be revealed it says, until he is out of the way. Now, again, wow. You know, there's been so much speculation about who is, who is holding back, who is restraining this man of lawlessness and this, and this uh, uh, mystery of lawlessness from reaching its peak. Who's holding it back? Well, a lot of speculation. The, Th- the Thessalonians knew in verse 6. According to verse 6, they knew, Paul knew, but we don't know. And so you may be sitting here this morning and say, you know, Brother Van, you said a lot about what we don't know. And that may lead to a question, why hasn't God told us more? And can I just simply say this? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, but what, for every reason, Scripture does not answer every question that we come up with. But it gives us what we need to know. So let me try to wrap up in the next five minutes what we do know. Here's what we do know from these verses. Things will get worse. Things will get worse. According to Paul, who wrote to Timothy, the evil men will wax worse and worse. Things will get worse. However, it's important to understand the direction of history. What we're seeing here, what we do know is this. All of these events are in the hand of God. Every one of these events are in the hand of God. Got to understand where history is going. And, and the only way we can know that is from God's word. See, history is God's history. That's the only history there is, okay? And so it's important that we know where's history going. And we're seeing it right here. And we're seeing that all of these things, the good and the bad, they're all in the hand of God. Look at verse 8 with me. Verse 8 says, And then the lawlessness, lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. Now, Let's say you're a person who wants details. I want details. What, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, sometimes you're going to come up short. 
We don't have a lot of details here, specific details. But what we do have is this, assurance, assurance. Let's say you're one of the Thessalonians and you're living during a time when uh, there's a great deal of persecution, physical and uh, intellectual, and uh, all these things are going to happen, all these things. All of a sudden, Paul says, yeah, but don't forget, Jesus is coming back. And uh, according to verse 8, he's going to kill the man of lawlessness. Now, you, you take that out and, and do a test run on that tomorrow, okay? Take that to work with you. And say, hey, did you know that Jesus is going to kill the man of lawlessness? Pe- people fall apart over that. People, oh, not my precious Jesus. Not my precious Jesus. Jesus wouldn't do something like that. You know, say, say, you, say you get invited on The View. You sit down with the ladies of The View. And you just say, hey, you know, I'd like to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 8, where it says Jesus is going to kill the man of lawlessness. They would freak out. All these people who don't, don't, they don't give a hoot about Jesus. They're not devoted to Jesus, but oh, they'll tell you Jesus would never do that. Well, friend, he is. He is going to do that. And it's not going to be some smackdown. It's not going to be him and the man of lawlessness. You take that, and then he, he swings one at Jesus. It's not going to be any of that stuff. No, he's going to, and by the breath of his power, just by his breath, he's going to wipe this guy out. Think about that. And it's astounding. And this is the same Jesus. Oh, this is the same Jesus who came first, and he was despised and rejected of men. It's the same Jesus. But this time, you see how he comes back? Yeah. He's going to kill the man of lawlessness. According to chapter 1, he's going to take vengeance upon those who do not know God and have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's my question. Why doesn't he kill everybody? Why doesn't he kill everybody? Anybody here perfect today? Anybody? Anybody here sinless? Anybody here, uh, you, you measure up 100% uh, to God's righteous standards. Anybody here failed before? Yeah. So why doesn't Jesus come back and just kill everybody? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. See, you ought to ask that question sometimes. Why, why, why does he come back and kill everybody? And you know the reason? It's because some have received him. Some have received him. See, so he comes back and he kills the man of lawlessness. The man of lawlessness hadn't received him. He comes back and he takes vengeance upon those and fiery judgment of those who do not know God and not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they haven't received him. But for those who received him, to them he gave the power to become children of God. And that brings us to one final thing that we know. We know this from these verses. There's a lot we don't know, but we know this. We know that it's important to know where you stand with Jesus. I've met, and I, I would imagine you've met people who... They, they, said, you know, they, they said to themselves and they said to people around, they said, I'm, I'm a Christian. But then they, they, they started going to church and they begin to hear the gospel. And I've heard them say things like this, you know, I, I thought I was a Christian. <laughs> I, I thought I was. But then when I began to hear the gospel, when I began to hear what a Christian was, when I began to hear that a Christian loved God's truth, and that a Christian took pleasure in righteousness. When I heard that a Christian was one who was devoted to Jesus Christ, I began to realize I wasn't a Christian at all. I, I, I said I was. I remember I, I used to say I was when I wasn't. But it wasn't until I heard God's word. I heard the gospel. heard the good news. See, just as there's such a thing as being asleep and such a thing as being awake, it's important to know the difference, right? It's important to know the difference if you're going to drive a car, whether you're asleep or awake, right? There's such a thing also as telling yourself you're a believer 
and actually being one. So we know this. There's a lot of things we don't know about these controversial verses, but we know this. It matters where you stand with Jesus. So in closing, where do you stand with Jesus?